Um, so welcome to tonight's session on Religions and the Practice of Peace, Colloquium on Humanitarianism, Religion, and Peace Practice. I'd like to start off, um, as ever, by expressing our thanks, especially to our uh, guest speakers, um, uh, Dr. Mark uh, Gopan, um, uh, Dr. Elizabeth uh, Padromo, for being with us this evening. We will um, uh, offer um, uh, longer introductions later. Um, I, I do uh, have a kind of little uh, library of Mark Gopin books, which I'm kind of seeking royalties redress from him on tonight, um, which I've really enjoyed uh, reading. So we're very glad to have um, you with us this evening. We're very uh, 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 grateful to the El Habri Foundation for its support of this year's RPP Colloquium Series, and to the Reverend Karen uh, Budney and Al Budney for their generous support of RPP, which helps us um, uh, make all of this happen. I'd also like to thank the faculty, fellows, alums, and graduate students of the RPP Working Group from schools and programs right across Harvard University. Um, and to all of you joining us from the surrounding area, and as always, our dedicated RPP students and volunteers. So we've built up quite a community of, of activists, friends, supporters, um, uh, scholars, practitioners. Um, in this colloquium, so I'm very grateful. In RPP, we are exploring not just the role of religion and conflict resolution, but all the ways in which individuals and communities have drawn and might draw upon religious and spiritual resources to advance sustainable peace, including through contributions to human well-being and activities such as humanitarianism. The link between humanitarianism, conflict, and peace practice is a close one as humanitarian crises are so often consequences of violent conflict, as you know, and as we're seeing today in such extreme and tragic form in the massive humanitarian crisis unfolding from the war in Syria. At the same time, ongoing humanitarian crises typically reflect deep inequalities and systemic injustices that would require significant structural changes to address far beyond what can be accomplished by humanitarian relief efforts alone. These problems are extremely complicated, as you all know. In our RPP working group this year, we have some graduate students with substantial work experience and academic interests in this area, and we are pleased to be taking the opportunity to dedicate this session to this very important topic in our world right now. In the RPP colloquium, we have the privilege of bringing together distinguished academic scholars and peace practitioners, and with members of religious communities deeply invested uh, and versed in the theologies and histories of their respective spiritual traditions. As RPP aims to foster creative and much-needed cross-disciplinary work, we're we especially delighted when our guest speakers combine expertise across two or even all three of these areas which I'm pleased to say is the case with both of our guests tonight. Having had Scott Appleby from uh, Notre Dame visit us in January, we're honored to have the good fortune of Dr. Mark Gopin's presence with us tonight. He will be sharing his insights and experiences on the lived theology of Judaism, um, which is, as you know, a multifaceted, he is as a, a multifaceted scholar practitioner and a true pioneer and luminary in the RPP field. His recent writings on the art of citizen diplomacy, a book I've just finished reading, and his research into the spiritual lives of Arab and Israeli peacemakers are excellent examples of the kinds of contributions to scholarship that we hope to advance. And I look forward to hearing uh, uh, more about his current project, 
which also sounds uh, very important. We're also uh, very excited to have um, Dr. Elizabeth Prodromo with us. Um, uh, uh, she's a member of our RPP working group since its inception last year. Um, and we've been enthusiastically awaiting an opportunity to feature her in one of our colloquium sessions. So it's really wonderful to have you here. A scholar and a diplomat, she's been doing important work in the area of humanitarianism and peace practice especially as these pertain to the Orthodox Christian tradition, and we appreciate her, her having suggested tonight's topic to us, so welcome. We're uh, also very pleased to have with us to guide us through tonight's session, Professor Jocelyn Cesari, um, friend, colleague, member of the RPP's working group and Harvard Faculty Advisory Board, who has been contributing her expertise to RPP ever since our very early discussions at the school to begin envisioning this initiative. So she's been really a friend and supporter right from the start. Um, Dr. Chisari holds the Chair of Religion and Politics at the University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom. She is Senior Research Fellow at Georgetown University's Berkeley Center on Religion, Peace, and World Affairs. And she teaches on contemporary Islam at the Harvard Divinity School and directs the Harvard Interfaculty Program, Islam in the West. Her most recent books are The Islamic Awakening, Religious Democracy and Modernity, and why the West fears Islam, an exploration of Islam and Western liberal democracies. These are really terrific works of scholarship. Her book, When Islam and Democracy Meet, Muslims in Europe and in the United States, is a, re is a reference in the study of European Islam and integration of Muslim minorities in secular democracies. She edited the 2015 Oxford Handbook of European Islam, and she coordinates a major web resource on Islam in Europe. Um, which you should um, go to uh, if you're interested. So with that, with a warm welcome to our guests, I extend um, uh, a special welcome now to Professor Cesari, who will get our program moving. Thank you, Jocelyn. Thank you. Good evening. Um, it's a great pleasure for me to introduce two colleagues that we have been working together in different capacities in Boston, in Washington, and in other towns. So I will give you a more detailed um, bio for both of them, and then I give them the floor for 25 minutes each. So Mark Gopin is a James Lau Professor of Religion, De Demo Diplomacy, and Conflict Resolution, and the director of the Center on Religion, Diplomacy, and Conflict Resolution at George Mason University School for conflict analysis and resolution. Dr. Gopin has lectured on conflict resolution in Switzerland, Ireland, India, Italy, and Israel, as well as at Harvard, Yale, Columbia, and Princeton. He has trained thousands of people worldwide in peacemaking strategies for complex conflict in which religion and culture play a role. He conducts research on values dilemma as they apply to international problems of globalization, clash of cultures, development, social justice, and conflict. And he has been engaged in what's called back-channel diplomacy with religious, political, and military figures on both sides of conflict, especially in the Arab-Israeli uh, context. So I just mentioned a few of your books, not all of them. And some of them, I guess, are here for display, purchase, both. Um, so um, books 
about lots of those. Um, I can just mention the one called Between Eden and Armageddon, The Future of World Religion, Violence and Peacemaking, published in 2000, and Holy War, Holy Peace, How Religion Can Bring Peace to the Middle East. Um, Dr. Elizabeth Prodromu is visiting associate professor of conflict resolution at the Fletcher School for Law and Diplomacy, where she teaches in the program in international negotiation and conflict resolution. She is co-chair of the Eastern Mediterranean and Europe Study Group at Harvard University's Center for European Studies. She is also a practitioner exploring the geopolitics of energy and the geopolitics of identity as they relate to the interaction between the Eastern Mediterranean and Europe. Before coming to Fletcher, Prodromo served as senior diplomatic appointment as vice chair and commission on the U.S. Commission and commissioner, sorry, on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom and she is part of the U.S. Secretary of State Working Group on um, Religion and Foreign Policy since 2011. And by the way, uh, Mark Gopin is also, we share the, the group on conflict resolution and, and um, education. <laughs> Um, the current research of Elizabeth is on the democratization consequences of secularist and religious nationalism and on religion and non-traditional security threat in, in Eurasia. So without further ado, I give the floor to Mark for 25 minutes. I will be monitoring the time and give you a five minutes warning when we approach the limit. Good. Um, well, it's wonderful to be here. I, I grew up in Boston. My family has been here for about 100 years. Uh, now, of course, I'm in Washington in exile uh, from New England. It was actually quite a culture shock to move from New England to, to Washington. And part of that culture shock really has a lot to do with our field because I grew up, um, I, grew up I didn't know a single police officer. I didn't know anybody with a gun uh, in my life. And I, let it, let, I had a very insulated um, very religious lifestyle, very orthodox religious lifestyle in, in Brookline, Massachusetts. And when I went down to Washington for the first time, I met, I met people called libertarians. And I'd never known them before in New England, you know. And then I, I met many, many people from military and intel, and they were my students. And I couldn't understand. It took me years to understand why they were even taking my courses on peace. Because in my world of New England, that was just... This, this wasn't the reality, and since that time, I, my thinking has completely reversed. Um, when I first came down to Washington, I ran to Capitol Hill. Now I run away from Capitol Hill, and I, and I spend a lot of time with people in military intel and police, which is quite ironic, uh, but it is actually a part of the evolution of, of, uh, of my consciousness to understanding uh, where the challenges are in this world, who is thinking rationally about them, who is not thinking rationally, um, and why, what is the role of ideology and religion, and particularly what, is it, what happens when people are in charge of life and death situations to their mind, to their thinking. And so that, that was quite a culture shock for me, but I, there, there it is that I find myself. I also found myself at a crossroads between a world of, of radical intellectual life, and I grew up around many, many uh, sophisticated doctors and professors from Harvard who are part of my community, my congregation, 
And that was a world that felt like Mount Olympus in many respects. And then at the same time, uh, there were the texts that I was being exposed to when I was growing up were not just deeply religious texts, Jewish religious texts, they were also deeply philosophical texts because the particular kind of orthodoxy I grew up in was very deeply influenced by the Enlightenment and particularly by the German Enlightenment and particularly by Immanuel Kant. And so I grew up with Kant as a kind of German pietist Christian hero, uh, even though I was living a deeply religious orthodox Jewish life. All of that um, was severely challenged by realities as I started to think about applying uh, Leviticus 19 and Exodus 23 uh, on loving neighbors and, um, and the, the image of God and all human beings in Genesis 1. And I, I, I come to the Middle East and, I, and I, I hit a brick wall between the spiritual, the spiritual, uh, <laughs> uh, every time that happens in the middle of my talk, I wonder whether somebody is uh, having a problem with what I'm about to say. Uh, and it's okay because, uh, you know, I come from Washington. The biggest, the biggest influence on me, these kind of, uh, these accidents is that for 13 years I worked in Syria. Um, now, seven of those years when the dicta in, inside the dictatorship, and, you know, I had to watch every single word I was saying at every single moment because of the Muhabrat, because of the police. And the, the police were often in my classroom. And, and that's when I learned the virtue of positive psychology. I became a convert to using only positive terms. And at first I did it in order to deal with Muhabrat, but I finally realized that it was changing my brain and changing their brain. And my Syrian partner and I discovered almost a new methodology that I'll talk about today in terms of conflict resolution and peace in extreme environments, in extreme environments of oppression, extreme environments of war, and the, the power and the, the, the power of both negative language, negative thinking, and positive language and positive thinking. And over time, I started to realize that there was a, an intimacy between that cutting edge research on the way in which the brain can be wired towards positive and redemptive thinking, imaginative thinking, future-oriented thinking, and, and some of the best thoughts and practices of religious traditions on a global scale. And I started to see there's, there's a linkage here. And there's a linkage here because religion, organized religion is a very, very funny uh, paradox. It houses some of the most illiberal and violent things in human history. And at the same time, it houses the wisdom of thousands of years of people who had an access to their thinking and their brain about one thing that, that is the key to human social change, and that is self-examination. Uh, all the great religious traditions have a deep focus, and their, deep, their deepest spiritual side of those organized religions is in, the, is in the practice and the discipline and the habits of monitoring thought, of monitoring feelings, of, of, of the notion of being on a journey where where you end up will be better than where you began. All of these things have a, a power to them that, is been, that has so far been unrecognized by the, the scientific community. And yet at the same time, the exciting moment that we live in in history is that the scientific community is discovering new and better ways for us to be less violent. I say, I say less violent, not nonviolent. I'll explain it in a moment. And uh, oh, when did I start? This is practice, by the way, because everything we're doing is teaching and learning, and 
creating a, a, a relationship between, between us and between the intellectual world and the world of practice. And this is exactly what you have to work out, is questions of translation and communication, which are always the, always the hardest ones. One of the reasons, I, my training is in, is, in, uh, is in rabbinic studies, of course. I studied half my life. I studied Talmud, Talmud and all the classic texts. But the other part of it was philosophy since the age of 12. And, um, and that philo philosophical training um, was transformative to my life. But at the same time, that um, philosophical training also made me understand why intellectuals have no communication with the world of practice. Because the world of academia and intellectual life, there's a couple of reasons why it's completely untranslated into the world of practice and the world of real human relationships. One of those is strictly professional. And that is that you get tenure by being not understandable. <laughs> OK? I mean, that's the key. I was on a tenure committee once, and people, somebody was in, I think it was Vietnamese Buddhist studies, and nobody at the table spoke any of the languages. And they, they piled up his books. And he said, looks like he knows what he's talking about. And so it was like the more obscure <laughs> and the bigger the books. There was a, so there's a professional orientation sometimes to be more obscure, to be more classified and specialized. And that's, of course, part of the, the, the project of moving from Socrates to Aristotle and becoming more specialized. It has virtue to it, but it makes it harder and harder to translate into, into human experience. And the second aspect of that is, is terminology and the way in which the brain, as it moves faster, needs more and more specific terminology. But in the end of the day, the genius of philosophy and the genius of, uh, is, is the training in reason. And not just reason, the cutting edge of social, psychosocial research is that reason and empathy must go hand in hand, which is key to conflict resolution. That didn't used to be the case. There were great 19th century th thinkers in moral sense theory and in other theories that understood that empathy had positive value for the development of reason, that perspective taking, getting out of your own skin and being in the skin of another was not only an ethical thing to do, it was the key to the growth of reason. Because the growth of reason and the growth of social contract, the growth of universal principles, means that I must be able to identify with everybody who's weird in the room and think about what would be right for me and everyone else, no matter how much I think they're strange. And that capacity, that discipline, was the, was the, the basis for uh, uh, for the development of the Enlightenment project. Well, lo and behold, it's not that different than the basic, the, the most pervasive ethical principle kind of coming out of religions in history, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Or the negative, as Hillel's language is, what, what's hateful to you, don't do it to another. That that idea, that perspective taking with the other was going to be Key and love, the pro-social feeling, which we can call compassion. We can call it, uh, empathy is not quite exact. It's compassionate empathy, as it were. But that identification with the other. So it turns out that the cutting edge that we're working in war zones, the hardest thing for anyone to do is to step into someone else's skin and do a role play. A role play is a deceptively but revolutionary approach to the building of the social contract in the worst of circumstances. So I've been working in, with Syrians for five years now in the most unimaginable level of horror and trauma that I can possibly describe. And the key 
to having multiple people at the table and having them build relationship and solidarity together is the role play and the perspective taking, being temporarily the other. Because it requires, it also requires another key thing that we're seeing that positive psychology has discovered and that's imagination and the focus on the future as opposed to the past. People are geniuses at why they need to keep killing each other. People are geniuses in why their problems are not solvable. They have infinite, very intricate explanations for why they, there's no solution. But when, you, and, 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 but when you ask them the question, what do you want to do? They say, I don't know. You know. In other words, what happens when you say, what's wrong here? What did he do? So the brain has infinite research, but that research is enslaved to the amygdala. The amygdala is enraged. The amygdala is afraid. And we all know the amygdala very well from our political season. But it doesn't matter. IQ doesn't matter. It doesn't help in this regard. Because if the amygdala is in charge, then the neocortex becomes enslaved to the proof of why I must be violent. Why the only solution is the dehumanization and elimination of the other. But when you ask another question, you say, what do you want to do? What do you want? How do you want to go forward? How do you think you can live together? People immediately have a harder time because suddenly you turned off the amygdala and you asked the neocortex to solve a problem. And that's when, if you do it well with role plays and many other creative methods, you start to have very sophisticated thinking that always come to the same Kantian conclusions, the same conclusions of John Stuart Mill, the same conclusions of moral sense theorists, the same conclusions of, of, uh, of the, the power and the virtue of inquiry, the Socratic moment. You start to, to realize that everyone in the room has genius if you just ask the right questions and you stimulate common sense. And we've seen all of this in the field. The, the main thing that is a challenge at this point is that there is a, a lack of common cause between those who are in the world of religion and those who are in the world of secular constructs of social change. I worked for 20 years to instigate that the State Department, I and a few others, that the State Department would take religion seriously. And that's what gave rise to the working group that we're now a part of. Basically, State Department, Intel, they were very, very good at seeing religion as threat. So every time I was on television, every time I was in government, they wanted to know what the threat was. Because in the, in the, in the modern construct, construct, religion was seen, is seen as a threat, very understandably, because there's many people out there in the name of religion doing unspeakable horror. The problem is that in the last century, 100 million people were killed in the name of other ideological constructs. Ideology, the hard wiring of the brain to dehumanize the other, is the thing that's tough to deal with in terms of making us less violent. So in the name of communist ideology, starting in the, in the 19th century, the late 1800s, the Nietzschean Marxist move started to move a number 
of ideologues, of both fascism and communism, to a radical dehumanization of the other. The radical unimportance of the other, so much so that Mao Zedong, when he was asked in the 60s already, could say, what's half the population? Big deal. What is it? So what if we lose 300 million people? That wasn't a crusader talking. You know, that was, he, he saw himself as enlightened and the Tibetans as backward. You see, because his idea was hardwired to say, I'm the righteous one here, I'm the enlightened one. And the others don't matter, they just, they're the dross of history. And the, the, the Hegelian thinking and others said, this is a necessary period of history, ethics is bourgeois, don't do that, etc. So where are we moving now? We're trying to move away from radical change, whether it be revolutionary, or whether it even, even be radical, nonviolent, uh, revolution because we've gone through the Arab Spring, we've gone through the horror of watching so many people of goodwill, Democrats across the region, just mowed down, destroyed by all the proxy warriors in power, in addition to the radical religious. I watched my Syrian Democratic friends, some of them even in the military defectors, all of them just assassinated, mowed down, no funding, and then for 30 years, I've been doing, I'm watching the same thing in the Israel-Palestine. Why? Because the democratic spirit or the spirit of individual liberty or individual conscience was the threat to the regimes of the region. So I, we actually got to the point in Syria where, where you had a thousand different groups fighting against Assad, and they were not allowed to talk to each other by their patrons in the Gulf. I asked them, why aren't you even having a meeting? Because he's, they said, the Qataris and the Saudis won't let us. And I just, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. So the other thing that we're learning in the field is that what appears to be religious is not. That what appears to be deep religious fanaticism turns out to be in the name of states that are behind the scenes. And that, and that theft and murder and wealth and greed and land are the key goals. It doesn't excuse religion for being in the service of violent ideas. Every religion on the planet needs to evolve and reform. Every religion on the planet needs to adapt and adopt the greatest of human thinking and wisdom thinking of thousands of years that's moving more and more to individual human rights to the acceptance of the other, no matter who the other is. That's, that's a given of the, the direction of history. What's not so simple is to know what's retarding that more. And to think that it's organized religion alone is a big mistake. It's a big mistake at the core of the core of what we're discovering on the ground of war. Another big mistake, of course, one of the things that's leading to a far less violent planet is the necessity of women's empowerment that is changing everything on the ground. Everywhere we've worked for the past 20, 30 years, it's becoming apparent that women actually, when they are together and talk, have successfully created more rational alternatives than the men at war. In part, it's not because men are hopelessly inferior in this, it's also that the men are particularly assaulted by the proxy warriors. 
and by the powers that be on a global scale that will go after the men, give them money, give them guns, and they will naturally, as protectors, take that bait and then be trapped. And I've watched so many people trapped by the enticing opportunity to be part of the solution, and in fact, it became an even greater trap. Whereas the women have many cross-cutting ties, and we know from social science now that cross-cutting ties lead to rationality. The more people you know, the more people you're listening to, the more rational your thinking becomes, the more empathic your thinking becomes. The more focused you are on innocent children, the more rational your thinking. So that when I started to think three years ago, it was an impossible war of proxy from every conceivable. There were thousands of, of, of fighters from every country in the world. And there were seven, 10 nations bombing the same place. I said, how can I do this? This is unprecedented in human history to have this many countries fighting on one, bombing one place and this number of terrorists in occupying one place. So I started asking a question. I, sa I said to the women, what do you want? What do you want? And they would say to me, I want it to stop. I want it to stop. And I listened and I asked and I started to see that it was bubbling up from many human brains. And then my Syrian partner and I started to advocate for ceasefire. Ceasefire. And they thought that we were crazy. And the powers that be didn't want us to be, they silenced us. And we kept on saying ceasefire and ceasefire until it became the process that we see right now. And as horrible as that process is, it's the only hope, actually. So what I want to propose is a greater alliance between, um, <laughs> it's okay, a greater alliance between, oh, there it is, is between the evolutionary steps that we know are accelerating less violence incrementally in human thinking, in human behavior, and in policies and governance, and marry them to the best spiritual ideas from each tradition on the planet. In my case, this effort is based on some fundamental Jewish principles of saving lives as the highest ethical priority, based on um, love your neighbor as yourself, but also the idea of the image of God. I want to move people towards empowering the positive and generating vision. This does not mean silencing people who are angry and in mourning. It means a slow and steady and therapeutic process of shifting conversations and solidarity and training in the direction of vision and change for ideas, but also for actions and also for policies to shift people towards the positive. What do you want? The greatest catastrophe that we saw in the recent wars and all the wars I've been involved in was a lack of a plan in plain English. Wanting to kill a dictator is not a plan. And yet even within nonviolence theory, some of it made right here in Cambridge, it's okay to demonize the dictator as a way of, of, uh, of going forward. And what we saw in the Arab Spring was that that's a catastrophe. That, that you need to have a vision because the vision tests whether you actually have a social contract or not. And so we did this with Syrians. And always the same thing came down to the plate. One group said, finally, they agreed on 19 things. And then they couldn't agree on whether the state was going to be secular, secular or Islamic. And so I looked at it, and we worked, and we worked, and we worked. And I said, OK, let's go through each one of the 19 things that you agree with. So I got their minds around that. 
I said, you have a contract here with 19 ideas on human rights that you all agree to. So don't call the state Islamic. Don't call it secular. Do you have a contract? We signed a contract. We signed a contract from Alawite to Sunni to Shia to Christian to Protestant to Catholic to Jewish. I was the token in the room. But the idea was they agreed on far more than they realized once they focused on the future, once they focused on what they do agree to. The um, Five minutes, right. The other thing is that teaching and modeling empathy in local and global relationships, particularly from kindergarten on, but the most vital and dangerous group is teenagers, is that those empathy trainings are also revolutionizing human thinking and human history. I just saw on Facebook, and Facebook is a fabulous place that's either a disaster or redemptive depending on what you craft. If you craft it positively, it's amazing. If you craft it negatively, it's a disaster. It's, the, it's cosmic. It's, 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 it's all of us. And I saw that uh, some anonymous teacher came up with the idea that in any elementary school in the world, you put a bench in the middle of the playground, and somebody sits in the bench when they don't have a playmate. And every, all the other kids are instructed, you have to go to that bench and see if somebody's there and take them into your play. And I'm thinking about how many people got hold of a rifle and a machine gun and killed their own classmates in the last 10 years of this disaster in the United States of weaponry, how many of them were alienated? And if somebody had come over to them in a playground in a bench and not let them get into a spiral of alienation, they never would have done that sort of thing. So I'm thinking that we need thousands of those positive empathic ideas. And they need to circulate globally and start to change who we are. Teaching and modeling shared reason in the service of universal principles, uh, the most life and happiness for the greatest number. There you see John Stuart Mill's influence on me and Jeremy Bentham. Empowering women I already talked about. Commerce is something else as a separate subject. Um, the particular focus on strangers is something that's 35 times in the, in the Old Testament. It's a very powerful law. You know, the, you know keeping kosher is three times and, and loving the stranger is 35 times. And it's revolutionary because, and, I, and I, this went over really well with uh, an, uh, a Protestant Catholic group in Ireland once when they realized that people need to love a stranger, not assume that everyone is the same. That cutting across a boundary and loving somebody or over that boundary means we are different, but I'm going to love you anyways. And in Belfast, that, that brought people to tears because it, it helped affirm identity and conquer the hate at the same time. And that, this, this brilliant, ancient idea of both love and strangeness is something that we need, to, and it fits very well in the Middle East in terms of this incredible tradition of hospitality and the Abrahamic uh, construct. Uh, and fair law and governance, there's no way around the fact that all of this needs to translate as Kant understood so brilliantly 300 years ago. This all needs to translate into the rule of law, laws that we can all agree on and move those into more and more universal um, and language that can be shared by a variety of religious traditions. So I'm going to stop there, and uh, we'll have a good discussion. Uh, 
I want to begin by thanking the organizers of tonight's um, colloquium meeting, and it's a pleasure, a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to be with all of you, and uh, I look forward to the discussion, and it's also a privilege to be with friends and um, to share ideas, and I look forward to, Jocelyn, your critique of, of both of our presentations. Um, I'm going to spend the next uh, 25 minutes or so uh, exploring the engagement of Orthodox Christianity to humanitarianism and peace building. Uh, this is a subject that I suspect might be relatively new to many of you. Uh, the past two decades have actually witnessed a, quite a sea change in the nature of the conversation and the parameters of cooperation between the international policy community on the one hand and religious and faith-based institutions on the other when it comes to humanitarian action. This is positioned under the broad rubric of religion and humanitarianism and the related rubrics of religion and peacemaking. But the evolving religio-political nexus in humanitarianism acknowledges a simple yet profound reality, namely that foundational human needs affecting the survival, dignity, and quality of life of our planet's 7.3 billion people and counting transcend geographic, faith, and ideological boundaries. And as such, efforts to respond to and provide for these basic human needs requires input from religion and from non-religious spaces together, cooperatively. What Michael Barnett and Janice Gross-Stein have aptly characterized as a secularization and sanctification of humanitarianism, I think makes imminent sense for the hundreds of millions of Orthodox Christians worldwide who are integral to the ethical and operational complexities of globalized humanitarian work. Orthodox Christians are what I would call both producers and consumers of humanitarian thought and praxis. A claim that on the face of it I think might resonate with many people in this room. In fact, I see many friends here and colleagues whose expertise on religion and peacemaking, religion and humanitarianism has actually focused on Eastern Christianity. But for the most part, in terms of scholarly research, as well as practitioner and policy discussions and programs, Orthodox Christian thought and practice, practices related to humanitarianism and peace building remain comparatively understudied, and in some cases, even misunderstood. This despite the fact that Orthodox Christians' teachings, ideas, actors, and practices are actually providing critical, innovative, and continuous resources for some of the world's most urgent humanitarian crises and for some of the world's most protracted and difficult peace-building needs. Whether these needs are generated by conflict-related crises or by sustainable development challenges. And likewise, this oversight when it comes to orthodoxy comes in spite of the fact that orthodox Christians live in some of the world's most fragile states, volatile regions, and ecologically and environment and economically challenged zones. So I'd like to provide you with an introduction to what I call the lived theology of Orthodox Christianity as it relates to the field of humanitarianism and more broadly to ideas about humanitarianism as they relate to human security. I'm gonna in, uh, integrate, uh, we don't have a lot of time, some very synoptic and stylized case references into my, uh, my presentation 
Uh, these will be drawn from the long durée of history, but also extend to the current historical moment. And I hope that looking at some of the empirical evidence will convince you that orthodoxy has a lot to say, a lot to offer, but also has great need when it comes to the question of humanitarianism. I'm going to put this down. Is that okay? All right, thank you. Now, um, I should say that I come from the vantage point of my home discipline as a political scientist. Um, and for me as a political scientist, I, I'm finding that an inquiry into orthodoxy and humanitarianism can help to identify the possibilities for cross-disciplinary discussions on two important counts. First, uh, orthodox teachings and practices related to humanitarianism point to the broader salience of religion for reconceptualizing the very meaning of security in our world today. And by this I mean a move away from state-centered definitions of security that concentrate exclusively on the monopoly over and the protection, the, the monopoly over and the projection of force, and that utilize a national security paradigm that prioritizes control over and protection of borders against state and non-state threats to sovereignty. A move away from this, focusing on orthodoxy and humanitarianism, helps us to understand how it is that religious ideas in general are uh, pushing a move towards a conception of security that's come to be known as human security. This is a paradigm for security that's been emerging um, with clarity since the mid-1990s with the end of the Cold War. And it grows out of the recognition that changes in the causes, contours, and consequences of social and political change require a fundamental reorientation by the international community towards protection of human beings, freedom from violence, and freedom from fear of violence. In other words, a move towards the security of human beings and those needs that are intrinsic to human ontology. The other reason that I think it's worthwhile thinking about orthodoxy and humanitarianism is that orthodox thought and activities in this domain are crucial in elucidating a more precise, nuanced definition of humanitarianism. What do I mean here? I mean a definition that distinguishes between short-term crisis-focused responses that tend to be episodic and even superficial in some cases because they do not address the deep causal factors that undermine peace and erode the human condition. As, to, as opposed to a view of humanitarianism that commits to sustainable development practices and policies dedicated to addressing and to resolving the variables, the causes which left unaddressed lead to the kinds of violence and conflict that you were discussing so eloquently, Mark. So most of my remaining text then from uh, this introduction actually draws from uh, a co-authored introduction that I've written in a newly published special edition of the Review of Faith and International Affairs uh, that just came out and it's dedicated to Orthodox Christianity and humanitarianism and it includes a collection of essays that grew out of a spring 2015 colloquium on the subject that I helped to organize. The motivations for that colloquium and also for the ongoing research were twofold. First, there's a lacuna regarding Orthodox Christianity in this emerging scholarly and practitioner literature on religion and humanitarianism. If we were to review some of the leading works in the field of religion and humanitarianism, we would find a relative paucity of systematic research on Orthodox Christianity, whether focused on humanitarianism explicitly or more broadly on the related fields of peace building and human security. 
And again, I, I did a, a quick, a very quick literature review of some of the, um, the scholars whose names I'm sure are familiar to many of you here, working on religion and humanitarianism, peace building and human security. For example, the superb work of uh, Barnett and Weiss on religious secular cooperation and contestation in humanitarian spaces. The very, very robust work by, work by Wellman and Lombardi on contribution of religious ideas and organizations to debate, debates about the responsibility to protect R2P and the international community. Uh, the fantastic work by Phil Pott and Falk on religious contributions to truth, justice, and reconciliation in the service of peace building. And then there's the large body on, of literature on just war that explores the relationship between faith and force, faith and freedom, by well-known scholars such as Michael Walzer, the late uh, Jean Beth Elstein, Beth, uh, Beth Gelstein, and others. All of these are interesting because they deal either with a, an ecumenical, a putatively ecumenical perspective and set of literatures when it comes to Christianity and humanitarianism, uh, and or they deal with interfaith work on uh, religion and humanitarianism, religion and security, human security, religion and peace building. And yet what we see in some of this representative literature is the absence of um, any systematic research on Orthodox Christianity. So there is a need, is, is my basic point, and hopefully I've convinced you. Secondly, why, why look at uh, this subject? Uh, as I mentioned before, Orthodox Christians live in parts of the world where they confront and respond to some of the most urgent humanitarian needs that we read about every day, whether we consider this in terms of crisis response and emergency relief or in terms of sustainable development. The fact is that Eastern Christians face threat to their survival in multiple conflict cases across Eurasia uh, they also face threats because of ecological and public health emergencies in Africa. And by the same token, so they're, they're consumers then of humanitarian relief and humanitarian support. By the same token, they're producers of humanitarianism. Uh, Eastern Christian faith-based NGOs, churches, associated religious organizations, they engage in humanitarian work by providing food, livelihoods, shelter, infrastructure and educational support. From places as far afield as Lesbos, I just returned uh, from there, to Louisiana, uh, from Jordan to Jakarta, from Kenya to Kiev. In all these cases, um, it's interesting that there's limited research on the norms and values, the theological principles and commitments that shape the organizational responses that affect the capacity of those organizational responses and ultimately that have an impact on humanitarian outcomes. So again, there's a real need to begin drilling down and doing systematic research on orthodoxy and humanitarianism. Now, in an effort to begin uh, filling the gap, uh, I wanna turn to some um, relatively, I, I, as I said before, I think un unknown and understudied uh, points in the history of Orthodox teaching and activities in the realm of humanitarianism. There's actually quite remarkable evidence to show that as, as a historical matter, ortho the Orthodox Church uh, has taken quite seriously its biblical commission to act as a transformative agent in the world. And the record of the Orthodox Church is replete with original, creative, and continuous activities that fit neatly within the intersecting social science and policy-making taxonomies of humanitarianism, human security, and sustainable development. For example, the Orthodox Church in ancient and medieval times developed an impressive range of hospitals, 
shelters for orphans, widows and widowers, hospices for the terminally ill and those with contagious diseases, and schools and libraries for religious and secular study. This plethora of uh, institutionalized and quite systematic organized humanitarian initiatives that characterize the Christian church response in the Eastern Roman Empire to human security needs or to human needs from the fourth century onward grew out of a rich set of theological teachings. These are highly theorized. Uh, they're very sophisticated. They use sophisticated discursive tropes and conceptual arguments. So Orthodox thinkers um, among them, exemplary, for example, Basil of Cappadocia, dealt with issues as diverse as poverty, environmental stewardship, and access to natural resources, peace and war, and provided clear guidance and in instruction for these charitable and philanthropic works that I mentioned before. So the long durée of history for the Orthodox Church reveals a stock of ideas that Paul Schroeder has characterized as an ethic of sustainability, which identified a baseline of human need and therefore called on the church in its fullness, quote, to develop a new set of relationships, a new social order that both anticipates and participates, anticipates and participates in the creation of a new heaven and new earth where justice dwells. Now, interestingly enough, and this might, I think, help to explain the absence of attention to orthodox sources on ideas about humanitarianism, the actual term itself, humanitarianism, is absent in orthodox foundational teachings. Yet, especially in theological texts, numerous synonyms and equivalents, such as philanthropy, agape, agape, as in fraternal love for fellow human beings, and charity and mercy appear quite frequently. Liturgical and sacramental texts, as well as New, Sec New Testament texts, are replete with narratives of the works by Jesus on behalf of the impoverished, the infirm, and marginalized, and Christ's mandate to love and serve one neighbor, one's neighbor is a categorical call to conduct good works for all humanity, humanitarianism in this regard. Uh, liturgical and sacramental texts include prayers and hymns identifying the philanthropic dimensions of the divine. Examples, for you are a good God who loves mankind, for you are the only merciful and loving God, and oh, only loving and philanthropic God, glory to, the, to you. So these teachings and these sources make explicit the connection between salvific works and social transformation. Furthermore, the notion of sacramental communion, by which Orthodox communicants participate liturgically in the Eucharist as a reminder of God's philanthropy, creates yet another possibility for understanding philanthropy as a relational collective act of sharing and communion. And I go back again, Mark, to your reference to uh, textual resources. Uh, the belief that all people are created in the image of God, imago Dei, which uh, Athanasius writes about extensively, leads to the notion in Orthodox Christianity of personal ongoing transformation, theosis, toward the likeness of God. And this supports the conviction that the ethical mission and responsibility of the church involves a continuous effort at personal and social transformation in the divine image. So what we learn from this early historical record of action rooted in textual resources is that um, there's actually a need here. There's a need for the translation and the transposition of very arcane and complex theological concepts and language into a discourse that's available to 
and uh, accessible to com uh, contemporary humanitarian uh, thought and, and efforts. And this, you know, this need um, really awaits heavy lifting by orthodox theologians, but I would submit especially by um, an interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary collaboration between people who work in the domain of theology on the one hand and social scientists and practitioners on the other hand. Now, the footprint of that effort, I think, that the beginning of that kind of collaboration uh, is evident in the, the text that I mentioned, the essay collections that I mentioned, but certainly not limited to that. And I want to give, again, in the, I think, what do I have, 10 minutes left? Is that right? Okay, in the 10 minutes that remain to me, um, I want to give some uh, examples of the beginnings of that kind of cross-disciplinary uh, conversation. I thought it would be useful to highlight the word of uh, Maxim Vasilyevich. Uh, his articulation of a theological framework for orthodox humanitarianism actually comes from the perspective of an Episcopal hierarch and a public intellectual in the Orthodox Church. And he problematizes the meaning of humanitarianism for Orthodox Christian thought and practice. Um, he focuses on what he calls the paradox inherent in the notable absence of the term itself, okay? Um, given the preoccupation of Orthodox teachings with the human person. And he addresses the paradox by offering a very succinct vision of Orthodox humanitarianism that's rooted in ecclesiology, Christology, and Trinitarian theology. Um, in other words, he says Orthodox thought um, is rooted in this kind of worshiping community that itself is drawn from ideas about uh, the person of Christ and the, the Trinitarian relationship. And ultimately, what's interesting about his arguments is that he suggests that Orthodoxy views the ecclesia um, as the, the source and the endpoint of humanitarianism, but he doesn't see the ecclesia as something that is a structure of four walls and inward looking. Instead, he says the church is one that doesn't limit its humanitarian aid to only those within the confines of that ecclesia, but it envisions a cosmic church, which includes all of God's creation. In that regard, again, you see this notion of commitment to social broad social transformation that extends far beyond any kind of rigid understanding of church. I want to um, give you a couple of examples of um, more uh, current examples. I talked about deep historical examples of, um, of orthodoxy engaged in humanitarianism. There's some fantastic research by Timothy Miller, for example, who looks at uh, the role of the Orthodox Church in the Byzantine period. Um, it's a commitment to ecumenical and interfaith humanitarianism, okay? He, he does fantastic work that shows that the work of the church that I talked about before in Byzantine times, again, wasn't limited to Orthodox Christians. It wasn't only limited to believers of any faith. It was uh, ecumenical, it was cross, it was interfaith. Um, therefore, it wasn't premised on the notion of conversion. It was premised on the notion of response to social need, response to what we would call today human security needs, and to transformation. In the more contemporary period, let me give you um, an example of two cases that I think are very interesting when it comes to the Orthodox Church as a, a provider or a producer of what we would call humanitarianism and human security. The first is uh, and the modern period, what we associate with the Westphalian state and the, um, the beginnings of the consolidation of the nation state in Europe. Um, the first large-scale experience of international humanitarian intervention, what we'd call R2P, responsibility to protect, 
actually came in the form of a humanitarian relief campaign and state interventions um, when the uh, Greek War of Independence, the revolution of Greek Orthodox Christians against the Ottoman Empire began in the early 19th century. And this is a case for political scientists interested in the religion uh, humanitarian nexus that I think is very interesting. Um, because first of all, it begins to show how it is that religious institutions and thinkers, in this case, the Russian Empire invoking its privileges to protect um, under the 1774 Treaty of Kuchik-Kunyardi, um, actually responded to uh, the needs of fellow Orthodox Christians under Ottoman control. Um, the notion that religious fraternity would motivate that kind of response, but also the notion that uh, be the beliefs and norms of orthodoxy demanded, for example, relief to refugees who fled Ottoman lands um, into Russian lands in Moldavia and Ukraine, and also uh, a response to famine in the Peloponnesus for those Greeks actually fighting for independence. Now, in this, in this regard, we begin to see something, the emergence in that example of what we see today, the discussion about ideas of interventionism as humanitarianism or humanitarianism as interventionism. These are historical or modern examples that speak to the need and the possibility for social scientists, practitioners, and policymakers on the one hand, and those who work in the field of religion, whether as historians or theologians, to begin to think about the norms, the religious norms and values that are very critical to um, a more systematic understanding of the conditions in which this, the suspension of the foundational principle of sovereignty, that of non-intervention, requires suspension uh, in the name of protecting individuals and groups whose very existence is, um, is at risk. So I, I, I'm out of time. I could give some other examples, but I want to say a couple of things about takeaways. The real issues for, for me here are two in thinking about orthodoxy and humanitarianism. The first is, why should anybody care? Okay, um, and hopefully I've you know convinced you that both in terms of textual resources and both in terms of the and the empirical record, there's some interesting evidence to suggest that. There we go. That's my cue. Okay, um, there's some interesting evidence to suggest that Orthodox Christians, as providers of human security, um, have interesting ways of thinking about religious responsibility and an ethic of social justice and social transformation that can be relevant for the contemporary world. And secondly, the other question is, why the omission? And here I'd, I'd like to uh, posit two points for your consideration. Why hasn't the, there been more systematic study? I would suggest that uh, in the case of orthodoxy, the omission stems from two things. First of all, uh, a larger set of historiographical, ideological, and geopolitical considerations by which Eastern Christianity has been largely written out of the scholarship dealing with uh, Christian sources on humanitarianism, whether we think of that in terms of crisis and emergency relief or development assistance. So that's a, a the convergence of uh, knowledge power regime uh, epistemic networks that are rooted in geopolitical considerations, and um, we can talk about this later, that help to explain the omission when it comes to thinking about orthodoxy. The second reason for that omission has to do with orthodox Christians themselves. 
whether practitioners or intellectuals, whether um, policymakers or, or thought leaders. Uh, the failure to transpose, as I said earlier, to transpose a rich stock of theological resources, but also to foreground a very intriguing historical record leading to the present that shows that Orthodox Christians are not only consumers, they have human security needs when it comes to humanitarianism, but are also producers of humanitarian work and human security and respond to human security needs in interfaith, ecumenical, and what Martin Marty would call religio-secular configurations. So thank you very much. Well, the courage that are still here after all this uh, noise. I would just to, to, in order to warm up the audience and um, uh, before taking questions, just uh, a few words. Um, it happened that today uh, Pope Francis released a new encyclical work. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Not the right place. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, I consider that a humanitarian. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and and um, this encyclic is basically saying that the just war uh, theory is dead and should be uh, abandoned, which I found very interesting. And in the name of pacifism and nonviolence. And so this is an interesting final or terminal point in a long history of Christianity where actually war was not illegitimate, where loving your neighbor was not a way to do peace. It was a way to justify war. And this was before the breakdown of Christendom. So there was this approach of just war as a duty for a believer in order to protect his or her community. And we tend to forget that for a long time, a Christian or religious thinking in general, especially the three monotheists, have not shied away from war. What is fascinating to me is to see the tendency among Christian groups today, especially in America, much less in Europe, to see war as um, taboo or as to be rejected. I think there is some danger in here, which is to not acknowledge that war is part of what groups do. What is a necessity as a religion is to regulate it, to avoid the dehumanization of war. And that's exactly what the theory of just war was about. So, um, but, but the fact that Christian thinking has moved away from thinking for the community. I love my neighbor, that's why I'm gonna defend him or her not because I love myself. Interestingly, in the gospel, you have also Jesus saying, you love your enemy. And this is not something on which the theory of war has been built, because loving your enemy is a more personal injunction. Loving your neighbor to defend he or him or her is about defending my group. 
And I think that the Christian thinking, especially in the West, and even more so in the US, has lost this centrality of protecting community to focus only on individual. And indeed, as individuals, the primary question was, I am a believer, I'm gonna go and kill this person, even if he's my enemy. The response was, you love your neighbor first, not your enemy. And why I am insisting on that? It's because today, in the way we are dealing with war and conflict when it comes to religion, we look only at individuals. And, and it's, it's important, and that's what you are remembering us, but you can work on individuals. You're not gonna solve the problem of community. War is a community issue. It is not only a personal or individual issue. And why is it uh, a deficit not to look at community? Because if you do not look at community, secular political actors take care of communities. And religion becomes important not because the, the human, per, the person or the individual is a recipient of belief. Religion becomes important when it can mediate the uh, logic or interest of politicians vis-a-vis -vis a community. Of course, 300 million don't count because <laughs> this, is, this is the logic of a state, of an empire that, that, that has to be built, but it is not about religion. And so when you start working on people, you take them one by one, they will all say this is terrible. But once you put the logic of institutions, organizations, and state action, it disappears. So how do you re-inject without making it the theory of just war? Because Pope Francis just said, no, we cannot do this anymore. How do you re-inject moral injunction into communal and collective responsibilities and move religion from being my thing, I have to work on it, to this is also for the whole good, what in Arabic they call maslaha, the common good. That is a common term to all monotheism. And I think this is, that's why I'm less Kantian than you, uh, Mark, because I think Kant reorganize, it's the phase of enlightenment, and it's the, the focus and light, so to speak, without pronoun, on the person. I have to work on myself. Yes, you can work on yourself, it's good. If you don't work also on the collective, nothing is gonna change in terms of logic and, and mass of group and peace. The peace is not just because religious groups have to become pacifists. It's also how you mediate different kinds of contradictory interests in the name of morality. And this is a question that secular actors and states do not have anymore. And, and so um, in, then the question is also about the theology. It's very interesting to me if we look back at history. The division between, you know, what is to God and what is to Caesar, that all, all Christians would say this is one of the major principles of Christianity, omission, return of things. This was not the major principle of Christianity until the Christendom lost its uh, capacity to maintain or control the state. Then it become a posteriori, we said, a justification of a new political situation. What I'm, what I'm saying here is that if we want really to work on religion and peace, we should not, not only look at the religious 
people or persons. We have to look them in interaction in a certain context with political interest and groups' interest. And, and the solution may be, at least in the light of the scholars that I am, in the interaction between the two and avoid the either or that unfortunately in our discipline is, is always there. So this was my two cents of um, trying to make sense of both of your, of your points here. Uh, I will open the floor for um, first the member of the working group uh, for 15 minutes or so, and then to uh, everybody. So members, colleagues of the working group, you are uh, welcome to please, in please introduce yourself. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I okay, can. Okay, great. Um, hi, my name is Sana Saeed. I'm a second year MDiv student, and um, I've had some experience with development in humanitarian aid in terms of being in Myanmar and working with the International Organization for Migration. Um, so I'm thankful that you've spoken on that and on humanitarian aid, and also thanks to you, Mark, for speaking on um, your insightful research. So my question for both of you is, um, just thinking about the conflict in Syria and other, in other conflict zones, how do we address the role of power in terms of the access and impact of peace work, humanitarian aid, and conflict resolution? Um, how do religious peacemakers engage power? Namely, I'm speaking to the funding for various conflict parties in Syria provided by places such as Saudi Arabia and Qatar, et cetera, which is really impacting conflict resolution work and humanitarian aid. Um, it's even impacting who comes to the table in terms of dialogue. Um, secondly, in my perspective, what I've read on human security, the framework attempts to place the citizen instead of the sovereign state as a center of a security framework. In this case, guaranteeing the state's responsibility is to providing the needs, freedom from fear, freedom from want for citizens. And I feel like this is being challenged in countries such as Myanmar, where ethno-religious groups such as the Rohingya are no longer considered citizens nor the responsibility of the state. So that leads to what, hence humanitarian groups are prevented from providing aid to this group of 800,000 internally displaced people. In this case, power, again, is playing a critical role in preventing access. So could you just expand on that? Thank you. Mark, you want to? How, how are we doing this? Are we collecting questions or responding? No, for now you respond to the. Oh, OK. Um, so um, yeah. Well, the funny, the, the most important thing is, is in Peace building, in my opinion, is a highly subversive act. You're trying to move a situation towards less, I, I, my, my proposition is, is focused on less violence, not on nonviolence, because of people's legitimate reasons to rebel, legitimate reasons to, um, to create a no-fly zone. There's all sorts of things that are not gonna be easily solved in terms of the ethics of violence and nonviolence. But we do know that on balance, less violence has been revolutionizing human history, lengthening lifespans. So we're always looking for ways. And a lot of those ways are quite subversive of power because there are many power interests at work that, that want to keep conflicts going or pursue conflicts. There are many power interests that will only respond when ISIS is threatening oil fields and not when people are being gassed. 
there are um, states that are so visibly at war with each other since 1979 that they've literally invaded every single country in the region with a Sunni Shia proxy warfare that is, is meant to keep going. So what we do by focusing on the individuals is we undermine all of their argumentation because we actually work with extremely conservative people. The cutting edge rational thinkers of Syrian uh, uh, ceasefire are from al-Nusra families. But they're the women with cross-cutting ties. They're saving lives of priests. They're, they're, they're more sophisticated in terms of diplomacy than anyone you could possibly imagine. And it completely upends the very secular interests of the, of, the, of the empires in the Gulf that are controlling negotiations. So there is a way in which we're doing this with the, 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 the individuals who are inspired by their own religious and sacred values. And at the same time, undermining the, the hijacking of the religious framework by states that have been using that, in fact, even Eisenhower in the 1940s was already pushing back on the Soviets with saying, emphasize the religious thing. And that's exactly when the CIA started working with Saudi on, on jihadism. So I mean, it goes very far back to this hijacking. But the very way we undermine that is by, is by empowering the individual, both religious and secular and across lines, to undermine that, that um, abduction of, of the religious argument. And as far as the Myanmar, I mean, your, your, your frameworks were absolutely right. I am a partisan of focusing more on human security. I am prejudiced towards the highest values and ideas of the corpus of Islamic thinking and spirituality for the last thousand years, the, the, uh, the Taoist philosophy, and not what's going on in a particular Taoist community. I think that the texts and traditions of several thousand years rise beyond the body of a community that often has become quite corrupted by its own worst instincts. I mean, you notice I'm not talking at all about what the Jewish people are doing now. I almost don't care because I think the texts and traditions of their prophets and their rabbis are more important than the particular power structures at that point in history. And I think it's the same thing in the Islamic community and in the Christian community. I'm far more interested in Pope Francis than I am in the legacy of the Catholic Church because I'm, I'm interested in, in the potential, the spiritual potential of his visionary ideas and not so much the body of the church and <laughs> the scandals of what uh, priests did, you know, in, in, in violations, etc. Those are things that communities have to deal with internally, but they're not interesting to the globe and its future. What's interesting is our best ideas, our best visions, both secular and religious. I'm taking as Elizabeth, you wanted to say something? Yeah, just a, a quick follow-up. Um, you know, your, um, your question about how do religious peacemakers address power um, and then the human security issue of really focusing on citizens as opposed to states, and yet, you know, it's states that at the end of the day, in the case of the Rohingya, and there are other examples, but this is a, a very good one, prevent humanitarian, um, whether religious or secular groups from, uh, humanitarian groups from providing assistance to the Rohingya. I mean, I, I think this is, you know, a fundamental issue that cuts across all of this discussion, which is that, you know, we still live in a world that's organized politically um, according, uh, according to states. Um, and at the end of the day, 
um, you know, the notion that states ultimately protect their own citizenry is one that, you know, we have ample empirical evidence does, does not, uh, I mean, it's not valid. Um, there are so many problems with that. And yet, we continue to f face this fundamental issue of non-intervention. And this goes back to, you know, my point about humanitarianism as intervention and intervention as humanitarianism and the responsibility to protect. Um, the responsibility to protect is a concept that grew up largely in the uh, 1990s as a result of the wars in, uh, in uh, Yugoslavia, but also um, the, eventually the Rwandan genocide and the failures of the international community to respond to what was obviously unfolding on the ground. And yet, you know, for all of the, um, you know, the enthusiasm for R2P as a means of addressing the violations, if not the limitations of states to provide security for their own citizens, we continue to be left with you know, a state-driven system um, that leads to the kinds of issues that you're talking about. And so I think what do religious peace builders do? I think at the very least, the minimalist, you know, responsibility of religious peace builders um, is that they need to critique. They must be brave, courageous, and unrelenting, not only in their critique of states um, and those kinds of violations and limitations, and then they need to do more than talk the talk, they need to walk the walk. Uh, wherever it's possible, in addition to acting as social critics, they actually need to be providers of and producers of humanitarian support. And that, again, I think, here's where my work on Orthodox, I think, is especially useful, needs to go beyond the episodic, symptomatic, band-aid approach to the, 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 you know, the colossal humanitarian catastrophe that's Syria, um, you know, and the refugee issues. I mean, the Syrian, any possibility for a durable resolution of the Syrian situation needs to take this long view of human and social transformation um, that doesn't focus simply on crisis and emergency relief, but focuses on things like refugee relief to, um, in the form of education. Um, people want to stay in the region, even if they're IDPs inside Syria or refugees in Jordan and Lebanon and Turkey. They want education for their kids. So that's a, that's a structural developmental question that is part of what we need to begin considering as humanitarian work, not development work. And, I, and sorry, I think this gets to a broader issue, which is our vocabulary is flawed and inadequate for thinking about the kinds of challenges that we face. And that's where, again, I think um, you know, religious resources and texts can begin to develop more nuanced and nimble and ultimately more responsive ways of thinking about these kinds of crises. Uh, yes. Oh, are you? Yes, no, no, uh, we have to give sure, um, the floor <laughs> first to the yes, member uh, of the group. I'm sorry. Arif Khan. <laughs> I'm also a member of the colloquium with a few others of us here. Um, I'm a low fellow at the Graduate School of Design, but I also disclose that uh, I spent eight years in the field in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East as a humanitarian aid worker. And uh, I worked for both secular organizations, such as Oxfam, and uh, faith-based organizations, such as Islamic Relief. And I uh, just want to say our appreciation for your talks today, as well as the readings that you were assigned in your writing. Uh, found them very insightful. One thing you touched upon um, was the uh, and one thing I appreciate about Judaism is the, um, the emphasis on reflection, uh, the emphasis on uh, introspection. Um, and you also mentioned reform, which Judaism has gone through and Christianity has gone through. What do you think it would take for a viable 
reform movement in Islam. And I guess I can open this for all three of you. Uh, as you know, there's been efforts throughout the ages. Um, what do you think it would take for a viable movement? Right. Well, um, in a word, uh, and I've, I've been working with people for 30 years. I've been working with Muslims for 30 years. Some of them very, very poor. Tremendous amount of women. Some of them are very, very rich. Some of them heads of state. And I can tell you that from the heads of state to the people on the ground, they're terrified of uh, secular families that are in control of the Middle East. The problem is not reform. The problem is tyranny. Okay, there is no, <laughs> there are stages of history when Islam was reforming when everybody else was in rolling around in dirt. I mean, the, the enlightenment, the, there's been many Islamic enlightenments. There's not a problem. There's, there's the institutions of ishtihad that were there from the beginning. There's a, um, there's a, there's a quasi, there, there was a marriage of science and religion and enlightenment and even almost secularism in a certain period of Islamic uh, history that, um, that's way beyond where the rank and file religious people in the Abrahamic faiths are right now. Part of it is historical, is that the odd thing about the Enlightenment is that it siphoned off everybody who had a problem with their religious system and they became secular. So they were out of the picture of reform. It used to be that when you were a reformer, you stayed and you fought. Now reformers go and build hospitals and, and, uh, and give to universities. And so that has been a concentration of fundamentalism within the major Abrahamic traditions that didn't used to exist. So it puts all the finances in the most um, reactionary, whereas the struggles within the Middle Ages were, were, were somewhat different. But it, as far as I can read on the ground now, it's much different than that. I know members of royal families that are terrified to stay in public that certain philosophies coming out of countries that of limitless wealth and American alliance, um, they're, not, they're not Muslim. I mean, do you know what it did to me to be working on the ground tirelessly in Jerusalem with a saintly Sufi sheikh who would just nonchalantly say, you know, they're not Muslim. And then to go a few miles to, uh, I'm not going to say the capital, with a royal family member to say the same thing to me. In other words, there are Oil is, has, has, ch has changed what's called orthodoxy and what's called heresy. So I think that the, the, ma the main engine of where exciting things happened in Judaism and Christianity in the last 200 years was based on freedom of expression and freedom of thought. So the more that we can create those enclaves of freedom of thinking within Islamic life, and I think India is an exciting evolution, Indonesia, the United States, I mean, it all, it, it, it's gonna depend on making people safe to free, freely explore. And I, and I have a lot of confidence that that's gonna happen with a global evolution of energy systems that are gonna be different. But it is, a, it is a very, very dark time for freedom of expression. So I'm not worried about reform, I'm worried about freedom of expression and safety for people to, ex to explore uh, new, new approaches. And we, we, we see, shades of all of those exciting evolutions, but it's really hard without, without when it's, um, 
even American, American thinking about the Middle East is not, every single university has a lot of money in it that prevents certain things from being named. Every think tank, it, it, it's a tough situation. It's tougher than people realize, you know. Uh, you know. <laughs> I, 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 don't want, I don't want to be um, because it's that bad. Uh, but I can tell you that there are heads of state in, in Europe, they're terrified to say the same thing too because half their real estate is owned by somebody else. So it's a very serious situation, but, it, but it's more of a, a mafia situation than it is a religious extremist situation, no matter how terrifying ISIS might be. I mean, ISIS is terrifying. It's, it's a horror. But we've seen this horror within fascism and totalitarianism before. It's, it's, it's not going to be hard to defeat the absurdity and insanity of the idea if we're free to do so. And that's where I think we need to move in terms of, and I really believe that human beings are tremendously resilient when they're allowed to name problems. And as we name the problem, and I believe in positive psychology, so you name it positively, <laughs> not, not by demonizing, but in a positive sense. How would you name it positively? Naming it positively, we're looking forward to making it safe globally for, uh, for, for, for Muslims to express themselves. You know, we're looking forward to making safe spaces. We're looking forward to uh, sharing with Muslims a planet based on human rights. You know, and all of these things that just work on that expression that sends a message, but does not send it in a demonizing way. If I can add something here, um, talking about reform is misleading. Since 1798, Muslims have been reforming Islam. <laughs> 1798. And... Um, so the question of Islam modernity, Islam democracy, this, this has been going on for more than two centuries. What we are living now is actually the outcome of the reform. The Wahhabi are a reform. This is not the traditional Islam. What we need to think of is the depolitization of Islam because this reform was actually absorbed in the building of the nation state. And, and even the so-called secular reorganize, reinvent Sharia, Ummah, Jihad. I can show you text of Saddam Hussein, and I block the name Saddam, and I give this tweet to you. Say this is Bin Laden talking. So that's what we are not addressing. This common language matrix sense that come from the modernity. So actually, we need to go back to the tradition of Islam, not to reform. The reform happened and it didn't produce the enlightenment that we, we think it, it would produce, including by the Muslims. It was not just an imposition by the West. It was a, a deliberate project taken by Muslims, but that led to something that is not what we think it would be. Um, so I, I would be very cautious to talk about reform because Haizas is a product of reform. This is not traditional Islam. This can, is modern Islam. Can I also, I, yes. I want to follow up on that. I, I think the way we um, get to an answer depends on how we ask the question and what are the assumptions informing our, our question. And again, I, I would submit to you, I mean, all of these discussions about what does an Islamic reformation look like? This is the Islamic reformation. Understanding the assumption that an Islamic reformation somehow would get us to a telos and an endpoint, I think, 
is, is a category mistake. Uh, we, when we think of reformation, reform, we oftentimes fall into the category trap of thinking that there's a start and there's an end point. And I think we need a far more open-ended eschatological notion of what is reform. Reform is constant and endless. And so we happen to be in one particular historical moment, and this is what reform looks like. Um, we can go back centuries or millennia, and reform might look like something else. And I think what the real question is, and, and both Mark and Jocelyn have touched on this, is does reform involve um, violence and coercion? Right. And I think that is the real um, that that's the embedded in your in your question about what does reform look like is either a kind of debate and competition about ideas and practices that you know may be very loud, it may be very ugly, it may be um, you know very messy, but the um, you know to use a phrase I hate, but I'll use it anyway. The red line is whether or not that competition over ideas and the interpretation of them and consequent practices. Basically, pluralism, internal pluralism within Islam or any other religious tradition accepts or rejects violence and coercion, whether that comes from within the religious religion itself or whether it comes from a state um, acting either in the name of religion or not. And I think the other assumption embedded in this discussion about reform, and this goes to your point, Mark, as well, about sort of what people are, what, you know, some Muslims are fearful that reform implies an endpoint, and the endpoint is secular, whatever that term means. It's become a placeholder that, at the end of the day, has really no descriptive or empirical value because we know that secular looks different in many, all around the world. So I, I would encourage us to think that way. And I would go back to your point earlier about the Pope, and I haven't seen Pope Francis' statement about just war theory, but for me, I think it's quite interesting that he makes this statement on the eve of his upcoming visit to Lesbos with the ecumenical yep. patriarch, because there is no just war tradition in Eastern Christianity. Um, just war tradition becomes consolidated in Western Christianity. Um, the, from the Eastern Christian perspective, war is conceived as a human and existential tragedy, a consequence of the fall, and ultimately, the recognition that war making as part of, as a defensive activity still involves it's it's intrinsically sinful, and there are all sorts of you know Byzantine military manuals that are accompanied by theological instructions about repentance, confession, and even you know separation from the Eucharistic body for the sin of waging war. So I think it's very interesting that what we're beginning to see is this sort of conversation between you know the two brothers as they call themselves Andrew and um, Peter um, about you know uh, rethinking reforming mm -hmm. remining you know Christian tradition so I would just you know I urge us to think about reform as an open-ended transformational process and violence and coercion are the critical issues I will oh there is one more question here Okay, please. Please. Well, it's very well, and thank you. I admire all of you, what you're doing so much, and just to wear a pessimistic hat, <laughs> the issue of fundamentalism, the word hasn't been used yet today. It's not just Islamic, as we know, it's Jewish fundamentalism, it's, it's, it's Christian fundamentalism in this country, and from the secular 
the optimism of the secular city here at the Divinity School to the Arab Spring, there has, has been disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And the idea of nation state, failed states, what can we do to bring <coughs> peace where, where religion has become so fundamentalist and also only a few fundamentalists within can wreak such ill in the world from all the faith, Hindu too, all, all the faith. Um, there seems to be so much more within the precedence of so much enlightenment, so much more tribalism, so much more non-state tribalism of all kinds than ever before, and maybe social media has exacerbated it, maybe it hasn't, but how do you, how do you work against such a situation where our, our identities as, as human groups has become so intense, so extreme, social media, be, we become self-selected bubbles of self-intensification uh, with actually less communication than before, although we have the technology and enlightenment for more communication than ever before. How do you fight this as symbolized in the lack of the secular city and the lack of the, and the disappointment of the, of the Arab Spring? Thank you. Thank you. Mark and Elizabeth, yeah. what um, do you have a response? I'm glad you raised the issue of fundamentalism. I mean, in some ways, some of the things that we're going through is uh, pointing to uh, uh, one of the biggest mistakes of the Enlightenment in the last few hundred years is that these incredibly powerful ideas that are so magnetic that billions of people on the planet, without any knowledge of, uh, of the people who began this language, Consider human rights, consider the concept of a right to be something that is, is, is deeply powerful in their lives. And some of them are secular and some of them are religious, religious. And billions of people are buying into this as the way in which they fight their fight. So on one level, the Enlightenment produced, its, produced some new brain waves and new thought patterns that moved, that moved in a direction of these are fundamental rights. That's axiomatic. That is revolutionary in human history. The big failing has been putting that into an educational framework and a habit-forming framework that actually religion was much better at. When, when Jewish tradition, Orthodox tradition, has you say blessings a hundred times a day, it's reinforcing something a hundred times. When you pray all day long with different blessings on gratitude to God, gratitude becomes part of your consciousness. The secular world has done nothing to create a consciousness that makes something a habit in the brain of every child growing up with human rights and democracy. On the contrary, we're seeing catastrophe in this very country where people around the world are far more educated about human rights than the average kid in some of the uh, districts that we're seeing. So there's a, there's, a, there's a danger to the Enlightenment project right now because of that lack of moving into habit-forming mind changes that will make these things into axiomatic sacred constructs. And that that's and we're seeing this weakness, we're seeing this weakness in many 
European countries where people are not integrated into citizenship. There isn't a notion of what it is to be a citizen with the consciousness that that means I have rights and you have rights. None of this is becoming part of the consciousness. We have to work on it as a global community. But the more important thing is why in all of the investigations of fundamentalism are Mennonites not studied? In every single major book. You see, Wahhabism and Mennonitism and Luther have much in common. They all fight idolatry. They, fought, they all fight evil and the darkness. And in, in fact, old Mennonite is very polarizing. The rest of the world is dark. Why don't we care about them? Because they're not killing anybody. On the contrary, you know? But when, so the, the key issue is violence. Luther and Wahhabi have a lot in common in terms of purification of an idolatrous environment. The key difference is when you export it and coerce it onto others. So this is where we're agreeing 100%. The future and the question of the future is not religious versus secular, it's coercion versus non-coercion. And that, that's where we have to focus. We, it, fundamentalism is, is not the problem. It's coercion. And that, and that go, cuts across fascist, communist, and religious totalitarian constructs. It's that that, we're wor that that has been responsible for all the deaths in history. I'm very optimistic because we're actually doing very well. We've defeated a lot of ideologies that focused on murder and death. But this one is trickier. It's just like why, we, why, why overeating is a problem. It's easy to see why some people should avoid alcohol. It, but, but you have to eat. So it's harder to find that temperance. It's the same thing with the religious impulse. As far as we can tell, people are always going to be religious. Most, many people, most of the planet, in fact, maybe evolutionary. A lot of physicists are accepting that. The question is, is it coercive or is it non-coercive? That's going to be where we need the negotiation with the, secular con with, mm -hmm. with the human rights idea. And with the secular, it, 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 that's why you need a, a discussion and negotiation with the secular too. Um, uh, uh, yes, you are. Um, <laughs> I really um, loved both of your talks, and um, you both. Um, it, it reminds me of Johann Galtung's discussion of cultural violence where there are sort of symbols and assumptions and cultural norms that can be inherently violent. One of the ones that he lifts up is when you locate the divine outside of creation in some way, in a way that you, you were talking, um, Dr. Perromo, about the Imago Dei and theosis. When you want to talk about some groups being more in the divine image than others, Galatung argues that that's culturally violent and leads to assumptions about sort of different treatments of different groups. And two of the ones that he mentions are men versus women and people versus the rest of creation. And uh, so I'm just wondering, what unexamined cultural violences do you see in your own traditions, such as cultural violence against women or against nature, that inhibit your religion's potential to really optimize their peace-building power? Um, and what are the best progress and, and you know, work that's being done on overcoming those unexamined or less examined than they need to be inherent cultural violences, you know, whether it's working with women in the priesthood or with language about the divine being female and male, or whether it's working on issues around embodiment and shame or 
local steady state economies meet consumption. I don't know. I'm just wondering what your what your faiths are in examining what they are doing really well in terms of their own inherent cultural alliances. Uh, it, for me, I think that um, actually the only way I've actually functioned function as a practitioner is not a is not a is not a Galtungian move at all. It's more of a Gadamerian move, and the Gadamerian move is a, is a complete suspension of what I think I know. It's also, from a religious point of view, it's a radical humility. So I have, I, uh, you know, when, when somebody who's Diobandi from India comes to me from some very conservative sect, and he talks to me about his commitment to nonviolence, and that he's been violently taken over by some group that wants to do criminal stuff with his group, I don't care what his theology is. See, I, I, when somebody who's ultra-Orthodox Jewish comes to me and, and, and they start talking about the fact that before all of this nationalism, we used to have a good relationship with the Arab community, and there's hundreds of thousands of them, I don't sit there and argue theology with them. In other words, I, 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 unlike Gal, Galtung is, is, is helpful to understand all of the, the, the progressive theological discourse and thinking around Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, etc. It's wonderful. It's not an exercise in peace practice. In peace practice, you suspend. The best way, contact hypothesis, relationship building, perspective taking, is you suspend all judgment. I, I couldn't have lasted a minute in Syria if I was judging people who are, who are associated with an al-Nusra family. I'm talking about when you're talking, you were yourself talking about the importance of reformers staying yeah. in their own traditions to reform. Right. Yeah. Good. So, again, here I'm. Uh, gets really complicated. There are a lot of people who are leading great feminist fights to be able to pray at a site in Jerusalem that is a destroyed Palestinian neighborhood. So what's that? You know, I, I I'm not. You know, I, of course, I'm fully embracing with all of my friends of egalitarian philosophies, feminist philosophies, they're great. They're doing great work. They're doing great hermeneutics in the tradition. But for me, I, I, I have a priority to saving lives and to, uh, and to life and death issues. So I am, um, as long as people are free and not coerced, I'm much more interested in where there is coercion in the name of my religion. So that's where I, where I prioritize. So if somebody who's a chassid or an ultra-Orthodox Jew who's deeply committed to all human life, I'm there with him. Do I agree with his theology? Absolutely not. I've had settler rabbis that were at the cutting edge of reaching out to Hamas and humanizing the head of Hamas, a despicable organization. I didn't have the stomach to do what he did. But here he is with a big beard, ultra-Orthodox. I agree, I disagree with every single theological principle of his sacralization of the land. It's not because I don't consider the land sacred, but I don't agree with national sacred to the expense of the people who are there and making that a higher priority than pikuach nefesh, than saving life. But I worked with him because of his genius in, in saving life and, the, in, and his ability to reach out to the radical Muslim community uh, that were his neighbors. So I, I agree with everything you're saying about internal cultural violence. So everybody has their job. But, 
I take it as a halachic ethical priority to focus on saving lives. So that, that sometimes shifts my priorities. That's just, just my existential approach. Elizabeth? Yeah, um, I mean, these are obviously more personal reflections, but um, in terms of looking at my, my own tradition, um, to respond directly to your question, um, I, I would uh, say um, greater fealty to and fidelity to um, three, um, you know, um, theological principles. The first is this notion of the image and likeness, that every individual is indeed created in the image and likeness of God, which implies a radical move. Um, first of all, a radical acceptance of pluralism, um, which I think is quite comfortable with the world in which we live. Um, so, you know, regardless of race, ethnicity, language, gender, uh, you know, every single individual is indeed created in that image and likeness. And being able to sort of internalize that and practice that, um, I think, you know, is, is a, it's just a colossal task and it's a challenge. And the only thing you can do is keep each other honest every day and keep yourself honest about that and be mindful of that. Um, I think in terms of, um, you know, the Orthodox church as glo uh, thinking as a, as a global church, um, that means uh, also not looking to states um, to do the work that churches are committed to do by virtue of their own, um, you know, their own theology. Um, image and likeness, uh, acknowledging that, protecting that, uh, living and facilitating that means that uh, it's not up to states to make those decisions. It, that's where the church can fulfill its own mission by being church, by respecting that kind of uniqueness and universality. Um, the other sort of, uh, you know, theological uh, principles that I think are especially important and for church as church to be mindful of, um, speak the truth in love as uh, Paul uh, calls people to do. Uh, truth telling is it's not easy, it's uh, difficult and sometimes it's very dangerous business. Um, but I think that and uh, you know, yet let your yes be yes and your no be no. Um, you know, uh, there's no room for wishy-washy when people's lives are at stake. Um, and I think those, in particular, remembering those, um, you know, in the Orthodox space are, are especially important. Um, I, I'm very heartened by the fact that um, those um, principles will be re-examined um, and in many ways challenged. Um, in the upcoming, there's uh, the so-called Great and Holy Council that's happening for the first time since, uh, let's see, I'm bad at math. Marion, you can do the calculation. Yeah, so what is that, eighth century? Where are we now, the 21st century? 13 centuries later, okay? All Orthodox churches are finally coming together in a you know, holy and great council on, on Crete. I'm thrilled that I'm gonna be there. Um, but I think you know, recovering that notion of the fullness of the ecclesial body and the ecclesia as something that participates in all of all of the world without trying to change the world and coer use coercion to change others to believe a certain way. I think these are heartening things, but you know, I always go back to Paul. I've made my peace with Paul. I was never a big fan of Paul, um, but you know, <laughs> you know, he, um, he just seemed too misogynistic to me. But you know, I've made my peace with Paul, and so you know. 
speaking the truth in love, I think, is, you know, one of the smartest things he ever said, you know, so. Um, so anyway, that's how I'd respond to you. I take a question over there in the back. Leonid Mechik, student from Russia. I, I got a question to, um, uh, to you as representative of the ortho Orthodox um, uh, explanation here, but also to all three of you in a way. So coming from Russia, uh, Orthodox Church is becoming strong now in the whole region, Serbia, Ukraine, uh, Russia, just to name few. And um, basically starting absolutely new, almost from, from the scratch. There was Orthodox Church there, but the start starting from the scratch, exactly as, uh, for example, Judaism. And what is happening, what, what, we, will, what we are seeing now in, in the region is basically it's coming back to the pre-enlightenment uh, uh, mentality of the church. It's uh, nationalism, almost pogrom, uh, pogrom mentality. Now, not against the Jews, but um, against Muslims in, uh, in Russia against Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Basically in Ukraine now we got this conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And um, seeing this history of only 20 years of, uh, 30 years of Orthodox Church becoming strong in this particular region where it's almost like a social experiment of revival of a religion. How much trust can we give to any of the religions? Uh, seeing this basically the biggest uh, population-wise uh, representation of Orthodox Church um, arriving at this moment uh, after only 30 years of uh, liberalization of uh, religious market in Russia? Wow, that was a long question. Um, I'll, I'll try to respond to some of the things I hear in the question because I'm not quite sure. Uh, let me just sort of respond and um, offer some thoughts about the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, and I'm not a representative of orthodoxy, I'm just myself, okay? So um, anyway, um, I think the Russian Orthodox Church is a complicated case um, for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that um, it is, um, it's a martyred church, people tend to forget that. Um, you know, 1917 to 1989, uh, that's uh, 70 years of um, you know, being subjected to the effort by this by the Bolsheviks to obliterate the Russian church. And I think that tends to be forgotten because of the tendency to think about and analyze the Russian Orthodox Church within the context of a, um, an exclusively geopolitical lens. Um, so if you read, for example, if you read literature that talks about, um, you know, repression of people of faith during the Cold War, who were those 20 millions of people who lost their lives um, in gulags in the Soviet Union? I mean, they weren't empty placeholders of people who had no conscience. Most of those happened to be Russian Orthodox Christians, right? Um, so I think you know, that tends to be forgotten, and I think that helps to account for, not to justify in any way, but historicizing these kinds of questions helps to account for the extraordinary defensiveness on the part of the Russian Orthodox Church today, and it's unfortunate from my perspective, willingness to um, you know, work in close cooperation and lockstep with um, a state that is authoritarian. Um, so I would you know, see this from a, both a political science perspective but a historical perspective. 
Um, we keep using the term enlightenment as though the enlightenment produced, you know, this thing called secularism, where secularism is the, you know, embodiment of tolerance. Well, I think we have ample historical evidence to show that secularism oftentimes produces exactly the opposite of tolerance. And I, and I say that quite deliberately because I think we forget that. Um, so, you know, going back, I'm not really sure what that means in the case of the Russian church going back to a pre-enlightenment period. I think the Russian church, going back to their um, earlier question about reform in Islam, what we're seeing in the case of the you know, Russian Orthodox space is a, a, is a very, very complicated and not pretty uh, battle over reform. Um, that's what's happening there. And we tend to think reform is something positive, only positive, but it has multiple valences. So I think, again, it's important to think about what's happening in the Russian church and the Russian Orthodox space is a battle over the willingness to ex accept um, a diversity of interpretations and practices when it comes to the, or the Russian Orthodox church um, and the reliance and the resort to the state to help resolve those battles and disputes over internal diversity, I think, is something that's not healthy for the, the Russian church. But again, I don't, I don't think it's any different than any other religious tradition. I think what's useful to think about with what's happening there is to think about the historical reasons and the contemporary political and ideological conditions in the country um, that help to explain it. Um, that's where I go back to this notion of the, you know, the holy, great and holy council that's going to happen in a, uh, in a month or so, uh, whenever mid-June is. Um, that is an expression of the internal pluralism of the Orthodox churches and disputes over how to interpret or the Orthodox faith and how to practice orthodoxy. Um, if you want me to be critical, it's very easy to be critical. And I'm, I'm not sure if that's what you're asking. It's very easy to be critical of a church that unfortunately has, you know, um, made an alliance with, um, you know, the Putin state that I think is to the detriment of um, freedom of conscience and belief, both for Orthodox and non-Orthodox alike. But that goes back to my early point that I think any religious tradition that looks to states to, you know, um, uh, impose a kind of coercion on um, internal um, pluralism is, uh, that's an unhealthy move. Thank you. Unfortunately, we are at the end of our time. So for the person who have more questions, I suggest that you follow up with the speakers. And I'm going to pass the baton to the dean to close up the session. Thanks, Aslan. Just a few uh, uh, brief announcements. Um, we'll have, a, as usual, a, a reception with tea and dessert in the lobby until 9 when you can ask more questions and eat and drink and be merry at the same time. Perfect. Um, the Harvard Coop will be selling books in the lobby in case you'd like to um, add to the royalty account. No, in case you want to find out things. Um, so uh, the books of our uh, presenters. And um, I'm not sure, do we have the review of faith and international affairs? We do not. Oh, uh, there are copies, I know, at the Coop. They um, provided a lot of copies of the Coop. Yeah. Great. So you can, you can find them there. Our next session is um, uh, in May on the evolving field of religious peace, peace building, Tannenbaum Peacemakers in Action. Um, we'll feature Tannenbaum CEO Joyce Dubensky and Syrian peacemaker Hand Kabawit, who is currently involved in the Syrian peace talks in Geneva. 
please join us as we consider this groundbreaking uh, work and the future of religious peace building as well as its role in the war in Syria, one of the most momentous conflicts of our time. So that, I think, will be another important occasion. If you haven't yet done so, be sure to sign up for the RPP mailing list so we can uh, bombard you with announcements about uh, our events. Um, finally, as we're nearing the end of the semester and the end of our second year in this initiative, we've given you all a brief survey on your way in, which we'd ask that you kindly take a few minutes to fill out here in this room. Um, this is very important to us. We're beginning to think of our third year and fourth and where we're going from here. So please um, uh, take um, a few minutes uh, to help us out uh, and drop it in the box that uh, we'll put on the table there on, our, on your way out. We really appreciate your uh, taking the time to give us feedback. It makes a difference to us. So please help us along with that. And just finally, I want to thank again uh, our uh, speakers and panelists, um, uh, Mark Gopin, Elizabeth Prodromo, uh, Jocelyn Cesare. Thank you so much for your time and for your wisdom.